Welcome back, everyone, to 1001's Best of Jack London. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, Chapter 4, from Part 1 of Jack London's White Fang. And now, Chapter 4, The Wall of the World. By the time his mother began leaving the cave on hunting expeditions, the cub had learned well the law that forbade his approaching the entrance. Not only had this law been forcibly and many times impressed on him by his mother's nose and paw, but in him the instinct of fear was developing. Never in his brief cave life had he encountered anything of which to be afraid. Yet fear was in him. It had come down to him from a remote ancestry through a thousand, thousand lives. It was a heritage he had received directly from one eye and the she-wolf, but to them, in turn, it had been passed down through all generations of wolves that had gone before. Fear, that legacy of the wild which no animal may escape nor exchange for pottage. So the gray cub knew fear, though he knew not the stuff of which fear was made. Possibly he accepted it as one of the restrictions of life, for he had already learned that there were such restrictions. Hunger, he had known, and when he could not appease his hunger, he had felt restriction. The hard obstruction of the cave wall, the sharp nudge of his mother's nose, the smashing stroke of her paw, the hunger unappeased of several famines, had borne in upon him that all was not freedom in the world, that to life there was limitations and restraints. These limitations and restraints were laws. To be obedient to them was to escape hurt and make for happiness. He did not reason the question out in this man fashion. He merely classified the things that hurt and the things that didn't hurt. And after such classification, he avoided the things that hurt, the restrictions and restraints, in order to enjoy the satisfactions and the remunerations of life. Thus it was that in obedience to the law laid down by his mother, and in obedience to the law of that unknown and nameless thing, fear, he kept away from the mouth of the cave. It remained to him a white wall of light. When his mother was absent, he slept most of the time, while during the intervals that he was awake he kept very quiet, "'suppressing the whimpering cries that tickled in his throat "'and strove for noise. "'Once, lying awake, he heard a strange sound in the white wall. "'He did not know that it was a wolverine standing outside, "'all a-trembling with its own daring, "'and cautiously scenting out the contents of the cave. "'The cub knew only that the sniff was strange, "'a something unclassified, therefore unknown and terrible, "'for the unknown was one of the chief elements "'that went into the making of fear.' The hair bristled upon the great cub's back, but it bristled silently. How was he to know that this thing that sniffed was a thing at which to bristle? It was not born of any knowledge of his, yet it was the visible expression of the fear that was in him, and for which, in his own life, there was no accounting. But fear was accompanied by another instinct, that of concealment. The cub was in a frenzy of terror, yet he lay without movement or sound, frozen, petrified into immobility to all appearances, dead. His mother, coming home, growled as she smelt the wolverine's track, and bounded into the cave, and licked and nuzzled him with undue vehemence of affection, and the cub felt that somehow he had escaped a great hurt. But there were other forces at work in the cub, the greatest of which was growth. Instinct and law demanded of him obedience, but growth demanded disobedience. His mother and fear impelled him to keep away from the white wall. Growth is life, and life is forever destined to make for light. So there was no damming up the tide of life that was rising within him, rising with every mouthful of meat he swallowed, with every breath he drew. In the end, 
One day, fear and obedience were swept away by the rush of life, and the cubs straddled and sprawled toward the entrance. Unlike any other wall with which he had had experience, this wall seemed to recede from him as he approached. No hard surface collided with the tender little nose he thrust out tentatively before him. The substance of the wall seemed as permeable and yielding as light, and as condition, in his eyes, had the seeming of form, so he entered into what had been walled to him and bathed in the substance that composed it. It was bewildering. He was sprawling through solidity, and ever the light grew brighter. Fear urged him to go back, but growth drove him on. Suddenly he found himself at the mouth of the cave. The wall, inside which he had thought himself, as suddenly leaped back before him to an immeasurable distance. The light had become painfully bright. He was dazzled by it. Likewise, he was made dizzy by this abrupt and tremendous extension of space. Automatically, his eyes were adjusting themselves to the brightness, focusing themselves to meet the increased distance of objects. At first, the wall had leaped beyond his vision. He now saw it again, but it had taken upon itself a remarkable remoteness. Also, its appearance had changed. It was now a variegated wall, composed of the trees that fringed the stream, the opposing mountain that towered above the trees, and the sky that out-towered the mountain. A great fear came upon him. This was more of the terrible unknown. He crouched down on the lip of the cave and gazed out on the world. He was very much afraid. Because it was unknown, it was hostile to him. Therefore the hair stood up on end along his back, and his lips wrinkled weakly in an attempt at a ferocious and intimidating snarl. Out of his puniness and fright, he challenged and menaced the whole wide world. Nothing happened. He continued to gaze, and in his interest he forgot to snarl. Also he forgot to be afraid. For the time, fear had been routed by growth, while growth had assumed the guise of curiosity. He began to notice near objects, an open portion of the stream that flashed in the sun, the blasted pine tree that stood at the base of the slope, and the slope itself that ran right up to him and ceased two feet beneath the lip of the cave on which he crouched. Now the great cub had lived all his days on a level floor. He had never experienced the hurt of a fall. He did not know what a fall was, so he stepped boldly out upon the air. His hind legs still rested on the cave lip, so he fell forward head downward. The earth struck him a harsh blow on the nose that made him yelp. Then he began rolling down the slope, over and over. He was in a panic of terror. The unknown had caught him at last. It had gripped savagely hold of him and was about to wreak upon him some terrific hurt. Growth was now routed by fear, and he ki-eyed like any frightened puppy. The unknown bore him on, he knew not what, to a frightful hurt, and he yelped and ki-eyed unceasingly. This was a different proposition from crouching in frozen fear while the unknown lurked just alongside. Now the unknown had caught tight hold of him. Silence would do no good. Besides, it was not fear, but terror that convulsed him. But the slope grew more gradual, and his face was grass-covered. Here the cub lost momentum. When at last he came to a stop, he gave one last agonized yell, and then a long, whimpering wail. Also, and quite as a matter of course, as though in his life he'd already made a thousand toilets, he proceeded to lick away the dry clay that soiled him. After that he sat up and gazed about him as might the first man of earth who landed upon Mars. 
The cub had broken through the wall of the world. The unknown had let go its hold of him. And here he was, without hurt. But the first man on Mars would have experienced less unfamiliarity than did he. Without any antecedent knowledge, without any warning whatever that such existed, he found himself an explorer in a totally new world. We'll return with Part 1, Chapter 4 of White Fang, right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Now that the terrible unknown had let go of him, he forgot that the unknown had any terrors. He was aware only of curiosity and all things about him. He inspected the grass beneath him, the mossberry plant just beyond, and the dead trunk of the blasted pine that stood on the edge of an open space among the trees. A squirrel, running around the base of the trunk, came full upon him and gave him a great fright. He cowered down and snarled, but the squirrel was as badly scared. It ran up the tree and from a point of safety chattered back savagely. This helped the cub's courage, and though the woodpecker he next encountered gave him a start, he proceeded confidently on his way. Such was his confidence that when a moose bird impudently hopped up to him, he reached out at it with a playful paw. The result was a sharp peck on the end of his nose that made him cower down and ki-eye. The noise he made was too much for the moose bird, who sought safety in flight. But the cub was learning. His misty little mind had already made an unconscious classification. There were live things and things not alive. Also, he must watch out for the live things. The things not alive remained always in one place, but the live things moved about and there was no telling what they might do. The thing to expect of them was the unexpected, and for this he must be prepared. He traveled very clumsily. He ran into sticks and things. A twig that he thought a long way off would the next instant hit him on the nose or rake along his ribs. There were inequalities of surface. Sometimes he overstepped and stubbed his nose. Quite as often he understepped and stubbed his feet. Then there were the pebbles and stones that turned under him when he trod upon them and from them he came to know that the things not alive were not all in the same state of stable equilibrium as was his cave. Also that small things not alive were more liable than large things to fall down or turn over. But with every mishap he was learning. The longer he walked, the better he walked. He was adjusting himself. He was learning to calculate his own muscular movements, to know his physical limitations, to measure distances between objects and between objects and himself. His was the luck of a beginner. Born to be a hunter of meat, though he didn't know it, he blundered upon meat just outside his own cave door on his first foray into the world. It was by sheer blundering that he chanced upon the shrewdly hidden ptarmigan nest. He fell into it. He had essayed to walk along the trunk of a fallen pine. The rotten bark gave way under his feet, and with a despairing yelp he pitched down the rounded crescent, smashed through the leafage and stalks of a small bush, and in the heart of the bush, on the ground, fetched up in the midst of seven ptarmigan chicks. They made noises, and at first he was frightened at them. Then he perceived that they were very little, and he became bolder. They moved. He placed his paw on one, and its movements were accelerated. This was a source of enjoyment to him. He smelled it. He picked it up in his mouth. It struggled and tickled his tongue. At the same time, he was made aware of a sensation of hunger. His jaws closed together. There was a crunching of fragile bones, and warm blood ran in his mouth. The taste of it was good. 
"'This was meat, the same as his mother gave him, "'only it was alive between his teeth, and therefore better. "'So he ate the ptarmigan, "'nor did he stop till he had devoured the whole brood. "'Then he licked his chops in quite the same way his mother did, "'and began to crawl out of the bush. "'He encountered a feathered whirlwind. "'He was confused and blinded by the rush of it "'and the beat of angry wings. "'He hit his head between his paws and yelped. "'The blows increased.' The mother ptarmigan was in a fury. Then he became angry. He rose up, snarling, striking out with his paws. He sank his tiny teeth into one of the wings and pulled and tugged steadily. The ptarmigan struggled against him, showering blows upon him with a free wing. It was his first battle. He was elated. He forgot all about the unknown. He no longer was afraid of anything. He was fighting, tearing at a live thing that was striking at him. Also, this live thing was meat. The lust to kill was on him. He had just destroyed little live things. He could now destroy a big live thing. He was too busy and happy to know that he was happy. He was thrilling and exciting in ways new to him and greater to him than any he had known before. He held on to the wing and growled between his tight clenched teeth. The ptarmigan dragged him out of the bush. When she turned and tried to drag him back into the bush's shelter, he pulled her away from it and out into the open. And all the time she was making outcry and striking with a free wing, while feathers were flying like snowfall. The pitch to which he was aroused was tremendous. All the fighting blood of his breed was up in him and surging through him. This was living, though he did not know it. He was realizing his own meaning in the world. He was doing that for which he was made, killing meat and battling to kill it. He was justifying his existence, than which life can do no greater. For life achieves its summit when it does to the uttermost that which it was equipped to do. After a time, the ptarmigan ceased her struggling. He still held her by the wing, and they lay on the ground and looked at each other. He tried to growl threateningly, ferociously. She pecked on his nose, which by now, what of previous adventures, was sore. He winced but held on. She pecked him again and again. From wincing he went to whimpering, he tried to back away from her, oblivious to the fact that by his hold on her, he dragged her after him. A rain of pecks fell on his ill-used nose. The flood of fight ebbed down in him, and releasing his prey, he turned tail and scampered on across the open, in inglorious retreat. He lay down to rest on the other side of the open, near the edge of the bushes, his tongue lolling out, his chest heaving and panting, his nose still hurting and causing him to continue his whimper. But as he lay there, Suddenly there came to him a feeling as of something terrible impending. The unknown with all its terrors rushed upon him, and he shrank back instinctively into the shelter of the bush. As he did so, a draft of air fanned him, and a large winged body swept ominously and silently past. A hawk, driving down out of the blue, had barely missed him. While he lay in the bush, recovering from his fright and peering fearfully out, the mother ptarmigan on the other side of the open space fluttered out of the ravaged nest. It was because of her loss that she paid no attention to the winged bolt of the sky. But the cub saw, and it was a warning and lesson to him, the swift downward swoop of the hawk, the short skim of its body just above the ground, the strike of its talons in the body of the ptarmigan, the ptarmigan's squawk of agony and fright, and the hawk's rush upward into the blue, carrying the ptarmigan away with it. It was a long time before the cub left its shelter, he had learned much. 
"'Live things were meat. "'They were good to eat. "'Also, live things, when they were large enough, "'could give hurt. "'It was better to eat small live things "'like ptarmigan chicks "'and to let alone large live things "'like ptarmigan hens. "'Nevertheless, he felt a little prick of ambition, "'a sneaking desire to have another battle "'with that ptarmigan hen. "'Only the hawk had carried her away.' Maybe there were other ptarmigan hens. He would go and see. He came down a shelving bank to the stream. He had never seen water before. The footing looked good. There were no inequalities of surface. He stepped boldly out on it and went down, crying with fear, into the embrace of the unknown. It was cold, and he gasped, breathing quickly. The water rushed into his lungs instead of the air that had always accompanied his act of breathing. The suffocation he experienced was like the pang of death. To him it signified death. They had no conscious knowledge of death, but unlike every animal of the wild, he possessed the instinct of death. To him it stood as the greatest of hurts. He was the sum of the terrors of the unknown, the one culminating in an unthinkable catastrophe that could happen to him, about which he knew nothing, and about which he feared everything." He came to the surface, and the sweet air rushed into his open mouth. He did not go down again. Quite as though it had been a long-established custom of his, he struck out with all his legs and began to swim. The near bank was a yard away, but he had come up with his back to it, and the first thing his eyes rested upon was the opposite bank, toward which he immediately began to swim. The stream was a small one, but in the pool it widened out to a score of feet. Midway in the passage, the current picked up the cub and swept him downstream. He was caught in the miniature rapid at the bottom of the pool. Here was a little chance for swimming. The quiet water had suddenly become angry. Sometimes he was under, sometimes on top. At all times he was in violent motion, now being turned over or around, and again being smashed against a rock. And with every rock he struck, he yelped. His progress was a series of yelps, from which might have been adduced the number of rocks he encountered. Below the rapid was a second pool, and here, captured by the eddy, he was gently borne to the bank, and as gently deposited on a bed of gravel. He crawled frantically clear of the water and lay down. He had learned some more about the world. Water was not alive, yet it moved. Also it looked as solid as the earth, but was without any solidity at all. His conclusion was that things were not always what they appeared to be. The cub's fear of the unknown was an inherited distrust, and it had now been strengthened by experience. Thenceforth, in the nature of things, he would possess an abiding distrust of appearances. He would have to learn the reality of a thing before he could put his faith into it. One other adventure was destined for him that day. He had recollected that there was such a thing in the world as his mother— and then there came to him a feeling that he wanted her more than all the rest of the things in the world. Not only was his body tired with the adventures it had undergone, but his little brain was equally tired. In all the days he had lived, it had not worked so hard as on this one day. Furthermore, he was sleepy, so he started out to look for the cave and his mother, feeling at the same time an overwhelming rush of loneliness and helplessness. He was sprawling along between some bushes, when he heard a sharp, intimidating cry. There was a flash of yellow before his eyes. He saw a weasel leaping swiftly away from him. It was a small, live thing, and he had no fear. Then, before him, at his feet, he saw an extremely small, live thing, only several inches long, 
a young weasel that, like himself, had disobediently gone out adventuring. It tried to retreat before him. He turned it over with his paw. It made a queer, grating noise. The next moment, the flash of yellow reappeared before his eyes. He heard again the intimidating cry, and at the same instant received a sharp blow on the side of his neck and felt the sharp teeth of a mother weasel cut into his flesh. While he yelped and ki-eyed and scrambled backward, he saw the mother weasel leap upon her young one and disappear with it into the neighboring thicket. The cut of her teeth in his neck still hurt, but his feelings were hurt more grievously, and he sat down and weakly whimpered. This mother weasel was so small and so savage, he was yet to learn that for size and weight the weasel was the most ferocious, vindictive, and terrible of all the killers of the wild. But a portion of this knowledge was quickly to be his. He was still whimpering when the mother weasel reappeared. She did not rush him, now that her young one was safe. She approached more cautiously, and the cub had full opportunity to observe her lean, snake-like body, and her head, erect, eager, and snake-like itself. Her sharp, menacing cry sent the hair bristling along his back, and he snarled warningly at her. She came closer and closer. There was a leap, swifter than his unpracticed sight, and the lean, yellow body disappeared for a moment out of the field of his vision. The next moment she was at his throat, her teeth buried in his hair and flesh. At first he snarled and tried to fight, but he was very young, and this was only his first day in the world, and his snarl became a whimper, his fight a struggle to escape. The weasel never relaxed her hold. She hung on, striving to press down with her teeth to the great vein where his lifeblood bubbled. The weasel was a drinker of blood, and it was ever her preference to drink from the throat of life itself. The gray cub would have died, and there would have been no story to write about him, had not the she-wolf come bounding through the bushes. The weasel let go the cub and flashed at the she-wolf's throat, missing, but getting a hold on the jaw instead. The she-wolf flirted her head like the snap of a whip, breaking the weasel's hold and flinging it high in the air. And still in the air, the she-wolf's jaws closed on the lean yellow body, and the weasel knew death between the crunching teeth. The cub experienced another access of affection on the part of his mother. Her joy at finding him seemed even greater than his joy at being found. She nuzzled him and caressed him and licked the cuts made in him by the weasel's teeth. Then, between them, mother and cub, they ate the blood drinker, and after that, went back to the cave and slept. Thank you for joining us for Chapter 4 of Part 1 of White Fang by Jack London. Hope you're enjoying the story. If you are, you Apple listeners, please do stop a moment and send us a review for 1001 Best of Jack London. We always appreciate reviews. We'll be back next Sunday at 12 noon, Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. 